Isaiah 52 and 53 are so intertwined together. It's really not one that you can just say, let's cut it off here. So what we're going to do is pick it up around uh, verse 3 and kind of move on here. Maybe be a little bit of repetition just to backtrack, make sure we got all the points covered. But it all builds up to Christ on the cross. And 2 Corinthians 5.21, that's the verse we talked about last week, that he that knew no sin became sin for us. Keep that verse in the back of your mind as you're going through this tonight. Jesus, who did nothing wrong, knew no sin, became the sacrifice of sin for us. That's the whole point of Isaiah 53. And what you're going to see here is there's at least six references in a span of about seven verses about Jesus taking sin for us. This is the pinnacle chapter on Christ being the suffering Messiah for our sin. So without much further ado, verse 3 of Isaiah 53. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid it as we were our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. What we left off last week was talking about verses 1 and 2 about this picture of Christ being human. And as it says in verse 2, this idea of the tender plant that grows up out of the ground and the relationship that God the Father and Christ had here, that this wasn't a business relationship, but a father and son. We talked about how as parents, as people, we have these relationships. We love to watch the little kids grow up. We love to watch them become men and women. Well, Jesus grew up before God the Father, this relationship of this tender plant. And what happened is, is the whole reason Christ was here is he came to die. I think we bring that up nearly every Christmas, is the reason Jesus was born is so that he could die. It wasn't a shock, wasn't a surprise, that was the whole purpose. He was die, he was born, and every day from then on is a countdown to his death, 33 years later. What a tough thing to think about. What a tough thing to realize is that that is the reason they're here. Well, why did he have to do it? Well, he had to do it for us. Well, one of the things that he did for us, you see in verse 3, is all that hurt and pain and heartache that you've ever carried... Christ said, I died for that. Now, and that's an important point, because if you're like anybody, you have good days and bad days. And I tell you, it is a tough season right now out here at church. Most of the phone calls, emails, texts I get are people that are going through a tough time. Their heart's breaking. Maybe it's marital problems. Maybe it's problems with their kids. Maybe it's job issues. Maybe it's life issues. You name it. They are sorrowful. They are hurt. And when you read history, Harry Truman had to make some of the biggest decisions I believe in the world. He's the one that gave the green light to drop the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And literally hundreds of thousands of people died, and he knew that. But those are the decisions that he had to make. And he was the famous one for the buck stops here. Well, he was talking about how you have to realize you can't do it all on your own, and he tells this story of, uh, you know, this supposed fable of this guy that um, ate 13 pieces of roasted corn, supposedly is what it was. And obviously he was very sick to his stomach. It was not sitting well, and he was hurting. He was hurting pretty bad. So I call in the doctor, and the doctor says, he ate too much, there's not a lot we can do about this. You need to call in the priest. So they call in the priest. The priest says, boy, this is not looking good. You need to make yourself right with God. And the guy that ate all this corn said, you know what? I am not one to pray. I'm not one to make myself right with God. I've never been a praying man. The priest says, well, that's the only thing I can offer for you is prayer. So the priest leaves, the man's sitting there, and he's in a lot of pain, and he realizes the end may be coming. So he finally breaks down, and he cries out to the Lord. He said, Lord, I know I shouldn't have done this, Lord. I know I shouldn't have ate those 13 pieces of corn. Lord, if you could just take care of seven of them, I'll take care of the other six. And the point is, that's what we do sometimes spiritually. I do it too. Lord, I got a big appointment tomorrow. I got a big counseling session. Give me wisdom. 
Well, what about the one at 12? That's not a big appointment. I got that one covered, Lord. Lord, big day tomorrow. Help me through that. Well, what about tonight? And I got tonight covered. See, what I start realizing as I go through Isaiah 53 is Christ took care of everything for me. He took care of my griefs, my sorrows, and my sins. Why do I want to take care of some of my own? I mean, I'm basically making what Christ did on the cross then of no value. Jesus said, James, I died for your sin. Okay, Lord, I accept that. Okay, Jesus, James, I died so that way I could carry that grief that you carry in life. Oh, no, Lord, I can, I can handle that one on my own. No, he died to take care of all of this. Look at these wordings again in verse 15. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was laid upon him. The end of verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's what makes Jesus your personal Lord and Savior. He died for your sin and my sin. He did not, in verses 5 and 6, go through this beating and torture and death on the cross for fun. There was a reason for it. I had sin that could not be dealt with, and Jesus had to take care of it. There was no peace between me and God the Father. So the middle of verse 5, the chastisement for our peace was upon him. Jesus says somebody has to take care of this penalty. And that's me. See, we forget this. God is a loving God, but God is also a very righteous God. And a righteous God says, I just can't let sin go. I remember when I first got saved, I thought, okay, Lord, you know, I, you, you did the whole Jonah thing in the big fish. You did the whole Red Sea thing. You created the world. So obviously you're in control here. You're telling me you just can't say, oh, let's just let it go. No, there's the classic, there's no such thing as a free meal. James, that sin, that fault, that whatever you have has to be paid for. I can't just let it go. That's righteousness. And so therefore, verses 5 and 6, everything was paid for through Christ. You know what the most amazing thing to me about the cross is? Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Something the other day, and uh, who was it? Kenan or somebody came in and needed something. And my first thought is, okay, I've got to put this down and go take care of it. We complain about everything. We complain about everything. And here Jesus, who truly did nothing wrong, opened not his mouth. Now, I know we throw this phase around a lot because I say it too. I did nothing wrong. Now, I say that a lot, but generally speaking, I really did do something wrong. It's just the other person did more wrong than me. There's very few innocent parties in life when it comes to things. Jesus truly, in verse 7, was an innocent party. If anybody had a right to complain, it would have been Christ. And if I was in Christ's shoes, I probably would have added an eighth phrase to the cross. Hey, everybody, just a reminder, I didn't do anything wrong. You did. He didn't say a thing. Other than, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. That's amazing to me. And why did he do it? 2 Corinthians 5.21 He that knew no sin became sin for us. See, we had to have the perfect sacrifice to take care of us. How many times have we said out here, all of us could have got on the cross and died for the sins of the world. Three days later, the tomb would still have a dead body in it. It had to be the perfect sacrifice. Verse 8, he was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave. Verse 9 is a great prophecy verse. They made his grave with the wicked. He died on the cross. That's what happened to the wicked. 
but with the rich at his death. He was buried in a very luxurious tomb, if you want to call it that way. It was a rich man's tomb. Verse 9, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Verse 10, I can remember when I first got saved. Verse 10 bugged me. I couldn't figure it out. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. That's, that's a tough verse for me is verse 10. There was a pleasure in God when Christ went through this. Now this is not some sadistic pleasure. It was a pleasure of finally things are going to be okay. Pastor's conference a few years ago, a guy gave this analogy, and it, uh, I've heard it numerous times since then, so I can't say who was the first one to say it, but you know where it's going. Imagine as a parent that your child is having some type of deadly disease and needs some type of life-saving transplant. It's going to be a tough surgery. But yet, you would be pleased when your child went into surgery knowing that that life-saving transplant was going to happen. Yeah, but they're going to cut your kid open. Your kid is going to have a rough few days of recovery. Your kid's going to be in pain. Yeah, but it makes me happy knowing that now this problem is dealt with for the rest of her life. Never has to deal with it again. That life-saving surgery, though it may cause a bruise and some displeasure and pain at the moment, is going to reap rewards later on in life. See, that's what we're talking about here in verse 10. God is not sadistic. He is saying, now that Christ died, the sin problem is dealt with. I can finally have fellowship with my children. God the Father, I can finally have fellowship with my kids. Not one day a year on Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, not just with one high priest, not through the sacrifice of animals. I can have actual fellowship with my children from here on out for all of eternity. That's why it pleased the Lord. Verse 10, He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. So his knowledge, my righteous servant, shall justify many. He shall bear their iniquities. I love verse 11. It's my new favorite verse. Look at that. My righteous servant, righteous, perfect, Christ did nothing wrong, shall justify many. Justify is a fancy theological word which means to make right. So therefore we've been made right spiritually. He shall bear their iniquities. How is that possible? Christ bared our sins. Isn't it amazing? In those short little what? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 words. We have the whole gospel message summed up. My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. The most important 12 words you could ever read. The perfect sacrifice saved me from my sins. That's the purpose of Isaiah 53. Therefore, verse 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many. He made intercession for the transgressors. Look at this. Verse 5. It says he was bruised for our iniquities. He was wounded for our transgressions. Verse 6. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 8. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. Verse 10. It says, It pleased the Lord to bruise him. You shall make his soul an offering for sin. Verse 11. It says, She shall bear their iniquities. And verse 12. He was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many. He made intercession for the transgressors. There's a point that God's trying to get across there in seven short little verses. I sinned. Jesus died for it. That's what it is. That's why it is so important to get to the nuts and bolts of Christianity. When I talk to people and I want to know really where they stand with the Lord, I ask them, who is Jesus to you? 
Who is he? He's my savior. Okay, well, what does it mean? How is he your savior? Well, he saved me. What does it mean? Well, it means I'm born again. Well, what does that mean? Because we throw off these terms. I'm willing to bet if you go into work tomorrow that what? 80, 90% of the people you work with will believe in God. Probably 80, 90% of them will pray. Maybe even a big chunk of them would call themselves Christians. But who is Jesus to them? Because when you read Isaiah 53, you can't get away from the point of, He's my Savior. The suffering Savior. The suffering Messiah. Turn, if you will, to the book of Hebrews chapter 9. This is what I want to finish with. Hebrews chapter 9. As we're going to Hebrews 9, does anybody have any quick questions, comments here? Yeah, tweets. Verse 12, because, what was it again? Therefore he should divide the spoil with the strong. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great. I take that as kind of like in Philippians where it says, Every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, that the name of Jesus will be exalted, the name above all names that finally what's happening here in verse 12 is that people are going to realize the portion and the spoil belongs to Christ. He's the conquering king. Because then from Isaiah 54 and Isaiah 55, 56, you start getting into Christ as the king. So I take that to mean that eventually the world is going to realize... Are you, see, now, now you're into deep, fun subjects, Megan. Does God ever give up? Um, does God ever give up? That's an interesting wording. There comes a time and a place where sometimes our heart turns away from the Lord where we no longer want the Lord. Uh, the best example of that is obviously Pharaoh, you know, in the book of Exodus. The Bible says numerous times that Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Then it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So does God ever give up? There's a time where we say, Lord, I no longer want you. There's something in the Bible called um, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit which is to reject Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and it's to say, I don't want God. Did God give up? Well, we shut the door on God, and we said, we no longer want you. So, yes, that can happen in that extent. Yeah? I, I assume in the New Testament, um, I think it might have been Paul saying that I turned over the so-and-so. Yeah, for the destruction of the flesh. Satan, the destruction of the, the flesh, flesh, that his soul might be saved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is an example. See, now we're into the sin unto physical death. Um, I really just want to get to communion, guys. That was the whole point of it. Uh, I'm kidding. There is something called the sin unto physical death, and that's found at the end of 1 John chapter 5, and that's also, I believe, found in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm off the top of my head here. And that is a, another subject for a different day there, but John makes a very valid point. Uh, J. Vernon McGee has a, a great story about that. He says, imagine you're sitting there in your kitchen and doing dishes. You see your son playing out with the neighbor boy, Timmy. Your son, Johnny, hits Timmy. And you go out to your son, Johnny, and you say, Johnny, don't hit Timmy anymore. Okay, you go back in, you keep doing dishes, you look out the window, and next thing you know, Johnny's laying another punch on Timmy. You go back out to your son, Johnny, you say, Johnny, don't hit Timmy. He hits Timmy again. You go back out and you say, Johnny, if you continue to hit Timmy, I'm bringing you in so that way you can't play with Timmy anymore. Well, Johnny goes out and smacks Timmy again. And every time he does this, Johnny always says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. J. Vernon McGee says eventually the mom or dad brings Johnny and says, Johnny, I'm taking you home so that way you don't cause any more problems. 
there with a sin unto physical death, and this is a meaty subject, guys. I'm telling you right now. The sin unto physical death where there comes a time and a place where God basically says, you know what? You're my child. You love me. I love you. But you're causing more harm than good down here. You, you need to come home. Now, that's a deep subject, and it's more than just that little story. But that's a simple way to explain it of you need to come home before you cause more harm than good. Now, I always have to throw this clause out here. Because there's always somebody that comes up to me after the message saying, okay, my uncle, my aunt, my whatever, who was a really neat Christian, whatever, you know, died some very tragic whatever death. Was that the son of the physical death? I don't know. I mean, if I go home tonight and I die, I don't want you guys all to think, what sin did James have that God said, I got to get him out of here before he causes more harm than good? Okay, that's not what I'm saying. But there is a sin unto physical death, 1 John chapter 5. I believe it's also in um, 1 Corinthians 9, and I can't remember right now. I believe there's a third reference. And when you start finding stuff in the Bible where there's not just one reference, two re- when you find stuff with a few different references, God is saying this is a point. And I'm willing to bet for most of us, if you come out of any type of mainline church, you don't really teach on the sin unto physical death. It's not a real pick-me-up of a message. And even out here at Harvest, when we go verse by verse through the Bible... We only run into that passage when you go through 1 John 5 or where it is in 1 Corinthians. My mind's blanking on that. But it is something that happens. That is something that God has used. And you know what? He can use that as a tool, and if that's the tool that he chooses to use in certain circumstances, that's God's division. I mean, excuse me, God's decision and his will. So you can check that out in 1 John 5, I believe, where it gives into some more detail with that. So I don't know if we answered your question or not, Megan, but uh, we are righteous in the sense of God looks at us as righteousness through Christ. We will be righteous for all of eternity. That's the beauty of heaven. And, uh, but, you know, as John was even saying there, too, there is an element of give that person over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, which is a similar topic but takes us off on a different tangent, too. Yeah. No. Uh, Unpardonable sin is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That is where you say, I don't want Christ. That's where you reject the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit is nudging at your heart, speaking to your heart, saying, have a relationship with Jesus, you say, I don't want that. That's the only sin that cannot be forgiven, which makes sense. Any other sin can be forgiven except rejecting Jesus as your Savior. So... Well, yeah, once yes, once you die, yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, we all. I, I mean, it'd be interesting to see. I know for me, and maybe some of you don't want to admit to this. Um, I, I remember it was uh, Jim Craig spoke to me for two years before I got saved. So I rejected the Holy Spirit for a couple years. Now I'm thankful that God didn't say, "Hey, one and done." It's not like that, but it is where you where you say, "I don't want this." And very good point there, John. Yeah, I don't want to make it sound like it's a one and done type thing there too with the blessing of the Holy Spirit. I'm not happy with that 1 Corinthians 9 reference. I don't think that's where it's at. Yeah, Howard. Deliver such one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. I didn't think it was 9 there, but it's 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5. But very good point there too, Howard. We have a free will choice, and that free will choice we have to choose to accept or reject. And you know, and that's what kind of takes us here. If you're in Hebrews 9, this is what, we, uh, what I kind of wanted to finish with, and forgive me for going through this um, 
shortly here, but uh, quickly I should say. But in Hebrews 9, it, it takes the idea of sacrifice Old Testament and ties it in with Christ. See, if you look in Hebrews 9, verse 23, actually, actually we'll start in verse 24. It says, For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Look at verse 25. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He would then have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's an important point. The sacrifice of Christ, Isaiah 53, was a one and done. Jesus does not have to die every Easter. He doesn't have to rise Every three days later there. So that's important, is this, this idea of one and done. And I know this is such a fundamental point, but we have to see how Christ in Isaiah 53 is that Messiah, that Savior that takes care of it. Verse 27, as is appointed for man to die once, but after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly await for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. And I love that. First time Christ came... He came for the sins. Second time he comes, ah, that's when the party really starts. And that's the fun of it. Let's jump ahead real quick. Verse 11 of uh, chapter 10 of Hebrews. Look at the difference here. Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, meaning Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for the sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering... He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. See, verse 11, Old Testament, the priest is standing, offering sacrifices daily, repeatedly, never take away sins. Look at the difference between Old Testament and Jesus. Old priest standing represents working. Jesus is sitting. It's completed. It's done. Ministering repeatedly, sacrifices. Jesus, one time, he took care of it. One time, verse 14, by one offering. He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And let's just finish this up real quick. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he said before, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, says Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Boy, verse 17 is great. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Christ doesn't have to die, which brings us to our whole point here. Verse 19, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. See, because of all this, Jesus, the sacrifice for sins that took care of it, verse 19, we have boldness now to go before God. That's the peace that he made. See, I didn't have that peace before. You didn't have that peace before. There was no connection between me and God. Because there was this whole sin problem. The righteousness of God said sin had to be dealt with. Hebrews 9 and 10, Jesus took care of that sin. So therefore, now enjoy your relationship with God. It's a beautiful thing. Peace is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And it goes on there, and we don't have time to get in the rest of 20 through 25, but it talks about then the assurance of that salvation and going forward in the body of Christ and church, etc., that we have this beautiful relationship now with God the Father. It's a beautiful thing. Bob, if you want to go get them for communion. That's why I wanted to do communion tonight. Is <laughs> for us to stop and say, and the worship team wants to come forward here, for us to stop and say, okay, he died for me. See, that's the whole purpose of communion, is to remember, he died for me. 
And as we get ready to do communion tonight, there's not a better chapter in the Bible than Isaiah 53 than to stop and say, He died for me. The man that knew no sin became sin for us. And that's what we want to do tonight with communion is to remember that. Now, I know Wednesday nights is a little bit different here than Sundays, but I still want to say this. You know, we have an 